Testing. One, Hello. two, three. We are in Acts chapter 2, as we've already seen this morning. And last week, we saw how the church in Jerusalem had its beginning in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the church was not dynamic on a human scale. It didn't have the bells and whistles of the modern church. However, it was dynamic in the eyes of God. It was supernatural. They were indwelt and empowered by the Spirit, as we've seen last week and this week in the Scripture reading and the text that we went through. And the evidence of that indwelling Spirit did not exalt them. It did not exalt men. It exalted God. It was demonstrated by God's power to save and the fulfillment of the new covenant promised long ago. We've already read our scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And Dr. MacArthur makes this statement concerning the passage. This passage describes the historical outworking of God's ideal in the first local church. It describes the newborn church in its prime, when it possessed a purity of devotion to the risen Lord unmatched in succeeding generations. In this brief cameo of life in the early church, three distinguishing dimensions emerge that reveal this to be a remarkable assembly. They manifested spiritual duties, first of all, spiritual attitude, secondly, and the result was spiritual impact, he writes. So this morning we're going to look at the spiritual duties. Hopefully we will get through these four spiritual duties that we find in verse 42. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we can call on your holy name, the very King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that created. Lord, you're the one that spoke and it was. We can't comp comprehend your greatness, your might, your power, your omniscience, your holiness, but we know it's true. We know who you are as you revealed yourself in the Word of God. And God, you have spoken to us clearly concerning the church. God, may we at Cornerstone believe you, trust your Word, and align ourselves with your Word that we might be pleasing to you and we might find ourselves to be faithful to you. And God, that you would bless us as a body of believers. And God, that you would use us. That your name would be great here in Myrtle Beach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look this morning at the four spiritual duties of a church, a local church. And everything this morning is going to be based on chapter 2, verse 42. So let me read that verse once again. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Last week we were reminded that the church gathering should not be designed as a magnet for unbelievers. We're not to engineer our services with the lost in mind. We're not to seek to attract unbelievers to church gatherings. 
this does not mean that we don't seek the lost, that we don't try to take the lost into the world. We are commanded to do so. We're to take the lost to unbelievers, take the gospel to unbelievers around the world, beginning for us here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We should have, as a church, hearts to share the gospel, to reach the lost, to glorify God in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, as we look at this text and any other in the New Testament, the assembly of the church, the church service is for saints. God has clearly revealed in His Word what a church is and what a church gathering should be. And we see that here in this particular text in verse 42. They were, notice, continually devoting themselves. A participle, a verbal adjective, the word devoting. And in Hebrew Dictionary, it says this concerning the word devoting. To be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, or to attend assiduously all the exercises, or to adhere closely to. These believers were continually devoted. And that's a characteristic of a true believer, devotion. Our devotion to the four spiritual duties of the church is based on our devotion to the Lord. A believer is one that has given himself to the Lord. And he perseveres in the walk and the ways of the Lord. It speaks of commitment to Him. <coughs> Excuse me. And by the way, faithfulness is inseparable from saving faith. Both these words, originating from the Hebrew text, stems from the word amon. It's the word from which we get the word amen, or truly, or so be it. So saving faith produces faithfulness. Trust in the Lord leads to faithfulness and devotion to Him. That's the concept here. Notice in verse 42 that they continually devoted themselves to four distinct spiritual duties. These are duties of the local church, duties of the bodies of believers, as we see here in the uh, city of Jerusalem. The first spiritual duty of the church, they were continually devoting themselves to, notice, the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' teaching is critical to the health of the local church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So the church must continually teach the truth revealed through the apostles. The apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God's plan for teaching takes place through biblical discipleship. The responsibilities of the elders is not some particular structure where they do all the teaching. 
but where elders teach and disciple believers to grow in grace and knowledge, equipping them to become teachers, to become rabbis, per se, and teach others. The key to 2 Timothy 2.2 is to teach faithful men who will teach others. And that's what we're to do. We're to find men who are faithful, who demonstrate faithfulness, who demonstrates trust in a practical way, trust in God. And we are to teach them and equip them to go and teach others. So it ends up, in a sense, being multiplication, not just addition, when it comes to discipling, when it comes to evangelism as well. A commitment to the apostles' teaching, again, is critical to the church and the growth of each individual member. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 2? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. The idea of sanctification there. Paul instructed Titus, Titus 1.9, that an elder is to be one holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And remember Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Luke writes concerning the Berean believers. And I, I mean... This is one of, I think, sort of the key verses in the Word of God for understanding the authority of the Word of God as well as our responsibility to it. Luke says this, Now these were more noble-minded or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, talking about the Bereans, for they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So they were anxious. They were hungry for the Word of God. They realized the apostles' doctrine, that teaching, that doctrine was critical in their own personal lives, and it's critical to the health of a local church. Every believer should be hungry for the Word of God. We should hunger for that more than we hunger for food. We should search the Scriptures daily to see what is being preached is really the Word of God. The responsibility falls on you because the Word of God is the authority, not any particular preacher, not anybody in the authority in the authority of the local church. The Word of God is the ultimate authority. We, as a church, must be faithful to the Apostles' Doctrine, to teaching the Word of God, being faithful to it, to proclaim it without compromise. So very important. Notice the second duty of the church. They were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine, but also to fellowship. The word koinonia, partnership, sharing, it literally means to have in common. Koinonia is not sitting down at a potluck meal, although koinonia, that communion, can take place at a potluck meal. But koinonia is something that's intentional. And it's based on the koinonia, the partnership, the communion that we have 
with Christ. We each in the body of Christ have the same Father. We are family members. And so we are united because of our relationship, because of our communion with God the Father. All having the same Father, we are united in Christ. And we should live like it. We should behave like it. Listen to the words of John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see that connection between communion with the Father and therefore communion with the body of Christ? John also writes in chapter 3, verse 14, 1 John, We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And so we see the love of the brother. That's part of, that's sort of the foundation of communion. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed, in, but in deed and truth, excuse me. We are one body. This koinonia involves love for one another. Koinonia is inseparable from love for God and love for one another. The two things go together. They are connected. Koinonia is expressed in the one another's in the New Testament in particular. Listen to the one another's for just a moment. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 12, 16, be of the same attitude toward one another. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Romans 14, 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 15, 5, be of the same mind to one another. That's unity. Romans 15, 17, accept one another just as Christ accepted us. That's powerful. Remember, Christ demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not love us because we were lovable. He loved us when we were still enemies. We make all kinds of excuses not to love one another in the body of Christ. Personality differences. Things that people have done to offend us. But Jesus Christ loved us when we were yet enemies. So Paul writes, accept one another just as Christ accepted us. Romans 15, 14. Admonish. The word means to gently warn one another. 
Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Hard to do during quarantine. Galatians 5, 13, through love serve one another. And that's not the word serve in the Greek text. It's doulos. It's slave, or in this case, enslave. Be enslaved to one another. Very strong statement of our relationship to one another. Ephesians 4, 2, showing tolerance for one another in love. Ephesians 4.25 Let each of you speak truth for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. How should we forgive one another? Well, Jesus said it's not seven times, but 70 times 7, didn't he? 490 times in Matthew chapter 18. You know, if somebody has to keep coming back and saying, you know, I repent, I'm sorry, after about the 10th time, we start maybe to question whether they're authentic or not. Is this person really sincere? But Jesus said 490 times, basically without limit. And he doesn't say, if you really think the person's sincere, forgive them. It says if they repent. And we can't always judge whether that's sincere or not. But if they repent, if they admit that they're wrong, basically, we would say, saying, I'm sorry, we are to forgive them. Let's continue with one another. Ephesians 5.21, be subject or put oneself under one another in the fear of Christ. Philippians 2, 3, with humility of mind, regard, count, consider one another as more important than yourself. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another. Colossians 3, 13, bearing one another and forgiving one another. Colossians 3, 16, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we each have ministry. A ministry responsibility to one another. First Thessalonians 4.9 You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. First Thessalonians 4.18 Comfort one another with these words. And it's talking about the, the words of the promise of Christ's return and that the fact or the promise that our loved ones will not remain in the grave but they will be caught up to be with the Lord first. Then the dead in Christ shall rise. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage one another day after day. Showing that continuation. Day after day, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 3.13 Encourage... Well, I, I did that one, I'm sorry. I jumped back. 1 Peter 1, 22, fervently love one another from the heart. This is not some superficial kind of love. It's from the desires, from the heart we're to love. It's to be genuine. It's to be real. As it's been said, without wax. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. So don't serve or be hospitable to one another and then complain about it. 
Do it without complaint. Do it for the Lord. First Peter 4, 9, to use our spiritual gift to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. First Peter 5, 5, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then finally, a very fitting passage of Scripture when it comes to koinonia, when it comes to fellowship. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking ourselves, our own assembling together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that reminds us of just how important assembling together in the body of Christ really is. You know, if we've never realized it before, over the last couple months, it should have become clearly evident how much we need to meet together for fellowship, partnership, for encouragement. We need one another. The Christian life is not the life of a lone ranger. The Christian life is communion with Christ and with His body. Love for the brethren is evidence that we are believers. Living the one another's that we just read through, living the one another's is the evidence that we love the brethren. The believer is one who by the power and work of God is dead to self and alive to God alive to God's purposes. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit enables us to worship and serve the Lord in unity, in partnership, in communion as we're controlled by the Spirit. You see, as we walk by the Spirit, as we're controlled by the Spirit, the manner in which we relate to one another is transformed. That's where we get koinonia. It's by the power of the Spirit. It's not some effort of our own. It's not some ability that we have. But as we are empowered by the Spirit of God, it transforms the way we view and relate to one another in the body of Christ. It enables us to see that God is our Father and we are family. We are the same blood. The body of Christ. That should be transforming for us as a church. That we would love one another as Christ has loved us that we could experience true biblical koinonia, that fellowship that goes beyond any blood relationship. It's more important, for we are one body, the body of Christ. Ultimately, the failure to love one another, uniting the body of Christ is evidence that we're not born from a God. We see that in 1 John. Understand, there are legitimate reasons to break fellowship with a body of believers, like heresy or sin that's not dealt with over time. 
However, breaking fellowship with the body of Christ, for most people, at least often, they're just excuses. They're excuses not to deal with my own problems and my own sin. This concept is so serious. The breaking of koinonia is so serious in the Word of God that John writes in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They weren't of the same body. And that's why they did not continue with us. If God has put you in this body, you have a responsibility to one another in the body. While we're, each of us are blessed to receive the benefits of fellowship, our focus should never be about what we get out of the relationship, what we get out of the body. It should be about what we put into the body. All these texts we saw, all these texts we read, they weren't about what you're going to go and get out of a relationship, out of the gathering together of the church. They were about serving, loving, sacrificing for the body of Christ. It's when we come to the end of our desires and what we want in our own flesh and submit to God's ways, submit to serving the body, that's when God blesses us and we actually receive something from the body. It comes from self-service. May we use our spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. Jesus said this, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but come to be served, excuse me, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So as believers, may we follow the example of Jesus Christ in ministry. The third thing, and these are much shorter, notice the third duty of the church. They were continually devoting themselves, still in verse 42, by the way, to the breaking of bread. And here that refers to the Lord's Supper or communion service. So in other words, this is really pointing out that they were Christ-centered. They were gospel-centered. Because all believers are united in Christ and communion, all believers meet on common ground in communion at the foot of the cross. The breaking of bread is the remembrance of the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. We remember His body that was broken and His blood that was shed. We are united in the communion service. We should be. As one body taking one cup and one bread. Communion calls for self-examination, admission of, and the forsaking of our sins. So it has a purifying, a sanctifying effect on the church as a whole and on each who participate. That's a necessary part of the Christian life. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. Therefore, we must be committed to the faithful practice of it. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. On the first day of the week, 
they met and broke bread. The bread represents Christ's body. We use unleavened bread because He was without sin. And it goes back to the Passover. Wine represents Christ's blood. And the bitterness of wine points to the suffering of the crucifixion. I won't say any more about that today, but it's what the Word of God teaches. Notice, fourthly and lastly, the fourth duty of the church. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer is talking to God. It's not meditation or reflection. It is to direct or directly address, I should say, God the Father based on the reconciling, reconciling work of Jesus Christ, His Son. We pray to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is the demonstration of trust in our Heavenly Father. You know, if we depend on our own abilities to live for God and to accomplish His work in ministry, we will probably find ourselves too busy to spend time calling upon the Lord and communing with Him. However, if we trust the Lord to conform us to His image, and if we depend on the Lord to give the increase in ministry, we will find ourselves on our knees, crying out to Him for strength to live the Christian life and for the Spirit of God to give the increase in ministry. Because we're trusting Him. We're just tools being used to serve. But it's God that gives the increase. And that's demonstrated on whether we as a church spend our times, time on our knees before the Lord. The focus here at Acts 2 is not individual prayer, but corporate prayer. We are to unite as a body of believers and lift our hearts in unity to the Lord. Corporate prayer. All, each of us, in agreement, calling on the name of the Lord in agreement, calling on the sovereign Lord, lifting our burdens, our wishes to Him, but trusting His divine sovereignty at the same time. Thy will be done. That's the attitude of prayer. While each believer is to pray without ceasing, the church is to come together faithfully and consistently, uniting our hearts in prayer having one mind, one heart, one purpose, one prayer. Not each of us with our own agendas, but in unity submitting our wills to the will of God. That's church prayer. That's corporate prayer. We understand that the church should pray for the sick, the hurting, and for our needs. But the predominance of prayer in Scripture is spiritual in nature. Prayer should begin with the exaltation of the one who's worthy. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy is your name. While we should pray for things, for, for, for really many things in this life, the focus should be in line with God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. However, it is completely appropriate to pray for daily provisions 
Give us this day our daily bread. By the way, it's not give us our steak. It's give us our bread. Day-to-day provision of our needs. The focus again must be spiritual in nature. Again, we pray for those things. We pray for physical things. It's appropriate. It's biblical. But the focus of our prayer life should be spiritual in nature. Forgive, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Scriptures also teach that we should pray for unbelievers, even that government leaders would come to the Lord. But notice just quickly, the Apostle Paul's prayer for believers. Listen to these prayers. These are Paul's prayers. He thanked God for all the Roman believers. He prayed for the Ephesians that they would have the spirit of wisdom and the unveiling of the knowledge of Christ that the eyes of their heart, think of that analogy, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That they would know three things. What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance? And what is the greatness of His power towards us who believe? He prayed for the Ephesians and Colossians that they would be strengthened with power according to His glorious might. He prayed for the Ephesians that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith that they would comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. He prayed for the Philippians that they would lo- that their love would abound still more and more, that they would approve the things that are excellent, that they would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. He prayed for the Colossians that they would walk worthy of the Lord. He prayed for the Corinthians that they would do no wrong, And they would overflow in thanksgiving to God. And finally, he prayed for the Thessalonians. That they would be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he prayed that he would see them face to face to supply what was lacking in their faith. He wanted to teach them more of the apostles' doctrine. That was his prayer. Do you see the overwhelming gist of New Testament prayer? is spiritual in nature? I have to admit, it's always bothered me. When I go through a prayer service in a church, and all it is, is a list of this person sick, and this person grieving, and this person going through this or that, all those things are important. Don't misunderstand. But if that's the gist of our praying, what are we saying? That this life is what matters? Why are not we not praying for the spiritual as the Apostle Paul did? Yes, pray for physical needs. But may we pray for the things that really, really matter. The things that count for eternity. That's what we need to pray. And we at Cornerstone need to begin to unite our hearts in prayer. That God would use us that we would be a testimony for Him, that we would love one another, that God would give us the strength and ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would teach and admonish and disciple one another in the things of the Lord. That's what we need to pray. And we need to begin to pray as a church. And I'm going to be challenging you. The elders will be challenging you in the days ahead that we 
would consistently unite our hearts in prayer and crying out to Him because apart from prayer, nothing that we do really matters. It really doesn't matter if we're trusting in our own abilities, in our own efforts to do the work of the ministry. It's God that accomplishes the work of the ministry. It's God that gives the increase. In conclusion, the first church in Jerusalem did not attempt to be relevant to an unbelieving world. They were not man-centered. They were not materialistic. But they were devoted. They devoted themselves continually to four things. The Apostles' Doctrine, Koinonia, Fellowship, the Breaking of Bread, and Prayer. They did not try to entice the lost. Rather, they went out from the church and took the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be like a typical church today that seeks our own wisdom in how to do ministry? Are we going to go and follow the Lord as He has revealed? He has unveiled in His Word. If we're a faithful church, if we are going to be blessed by God, just to be faithful, because that's really what matters. It's not numbers. It's not how big we ever get. It's being faithful to what God has called us to, and nothing else matters. What are we going to do at Cornerstone Church? Yes, we want to reach the lost, but let's do it God's way. And let's come together in our services, in our gatherings, that we would be equipped, that we would worship God, centered around doctrine and fellowship. See, all this is expressions of worship. Breaking of bread and prayer, all of it is worship-oriented. And it's centered on God, not man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You that we can call upon You once again. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, thank You for what You have declared in Your Word concerning Your body. Lord, this is Your body. We are Your bride. May we please You. May we look to Your Word. You have spoken. You have told us what to do. You've told us how to live. You've told us how to gather together and what our focus should be in our services. May we be faithful to You. The head, the groom of the church. Lord, thank You for who You are. And thank you for this gathering. I know it's precious in your sight when we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.